Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. Another week, another fallen Prime Minister. What is fantastic, I think, about when these things happen, and they're happening far too regularly and it's incredibly stressful, but every time it happens, you trend on Twitter, Ed. I'd have preferred to have won the election if it was all the same to you, actually. Trending on Twitter versus winning the 2015 election. I think I'd have chosen the 2015 election. You were the one that got away in people's hearts. Move on. And then let me tell you something else. This now trends every time there's some chaos. And we're now in 2022, so there's an assumption, Ed, that you would have been a two-term prime minister at least. Oh, yes, that's a good point, actually. Is is any of this uh, taking away the pain? No. No. I do have an idea for you. Go on. Is it too late for you to run for the Tory leadership? Well, funny you should say that. I've got one. I think a Tory MP might have joked about that to me. They said to me, you've led a political party. Maybe you should lead ours. (laughs) Would a rose by any other name? Mm, It feels far-fetched to me on a number of levels. (laughs) Do you not think the news just feels far-fetched? Well, the news does feel far-fetched. Talking of far-fetched, it was fracking what did it? I know. I enjoyed... Your um, frack me or sack me. I did. I enjoyed frack me or sack me. It was it was very good. I thought. Can I just say it was it was an absolute. I didn't see any of the alleged scuffling, but the fifteen minutes leading up to the vote, when Graham Stewart, the minister who was winding up the debate, you have somebody opening the debate. This was the opposition day debate. I opened the debate, and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg opened for the Tories. Craig McCarthy wound it up for us, and. Graham Stewart did for them. And he was the last speaker. And he came in and he said, well, just the first thing to say, it's not a confidence vote. I was like, what? So then you can do this thing of intervening, as you know, in the House of Commons. And I had to spend four or five minutes trying to intervene. Is that, that, when you say bobbing, is that bobbing? Well, I wasn't bobbing because I was on the front bench, but I was just tapping the dispatchers. I kept saying, come on, Graham. Come on, Graham. We know each other well. Come on, come on. And then eventually he did. And then I was like, well, hang, well, hang on. What? They've been saying all day people are going to be sacked for this, lose the whip or all that. And now you're saying it's not a confidence vote. And then the Tory got up on his side absolutely furious. And then once the debate ended, there were all these people surrounding Jacob Rees-Mogg saying, what is going on? Some of the most mild-mannered Tory MPs, I think using expletives and saying, what the F is going on, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then it was sort of the chief whips resigned, and then it was the deputy chief whips resigned, and then they haven't resigned. And I think it was just people were absolutely bemused. I had thought a week earlier, I wish I could get odds on 
Liz Truss not surviving till the end of October. I just had a sense that it was just going to all be over. You had a sixth sense. Well, I don't know about Somehow you were such, by then, you're such an experienced reader of the political runes no, by then that you were able all... to glean that things weren't going great for Liz Truss. Yeah, but thank you very much. Can you give me tonight's lottery numbers? <laughs> mm, yeah, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not claiming to be particularly far-sighted. I just think everything is going to calm down when yeah. uh, Boris Johnson is Prime Minister again. I mean... In his head, that is Churchillian. I think there is something quite important here to say, which is, why did Truss and Kwarteng do what they did? I mean, lots of people said to me, well, I could say, why is she doing this? They say, well, they think that they've only got one shot and they're probably going to lose and they're going to roll the dice. You know, she was building on a knowledge failure and a bunch of very, very fringe people in the Tory party took it over. Fracking being one example, not the only one. I was wondering about if this situation was playing out under a different electoral system. So assuming the Conservatives would no longer be one party, they'd be a coalition of two or three centre-right and right-wing parties, would there be a general election? Would the smaller parties in a coalition decide to take the chance of an election and forming new coalitions? I just don't know. It's just hard. It's just... I mean... There is something about our parliamentary majority system which means that you can change prime ministers. We talk about the argument for first-past-the-post being a kind of stability, and we've had anything but for so long. It is extraordinary. Five prime ministers in six years. Yeah. People are thinking, I can't afford to pay my bills, and this circus is going on. It's really interesting what doesn't doesn't filter through to people because, as, as you say, people are living their lives. People don't always follow the news and the goings on in, in Westminster. So things that seem very significant to us can happen, sure. and then you don't see a blip sure. or a significant sure. blip in the polls. And yet, with this, the public seem to grasp what's going on immediately, be spooked by it, and you saw that reflected almost immediately. Well, because it's so directly impactful on people's mortgages and people's finances. Mm. Speaking of people's finances, I was away for the interview section of this week's podcast, but it really required your big economic brain. I don't know about that, but the truth is that Liz Truss has gone and we thought we would look at essentially the trickle-down budget or the, the principle of trickle-down, which lay behind Kwasi Kwarteng and her budget, which which is where it all went so wrong. Oh, speaking of trickle-down, i got some good news this week. I've been referred for uh, some prostate examinations. <laughs> yeah, very good. Boom, boom. <laughs> and true. Uh, um, <laughs> what is trickle-down economics? It's the idea that if you make the wealthy and some big corporations richer, wealth will eventually flow down to everyone else. It's also called supply-side economics. And we'll be talking about that and alternative ways of thinking about the economy. One phrase that people use is middle-out economics. And we're going to be talking to... Nick Hanauer, an American civic entrepreneur, who is, I think, the person who probably invented the term middle-out economics. That theory says that investing in the prosperity of working and middle-income people leads to increased spending on goods and services. And it's good for, for that reason and other reasons, good for economic growth as a whole. We're also going to be joined by economist Sue Himmelweit, who's going to be talking about trickle-down economics and what it means in a bit more detail and whether it works or not, and by Juha Lepinen, who will tell us about the Finnish model of economic success and how much that owes to middle-out economics. We always enjoy hearing from a flying Finn. 
we do. I was missing you for the pronunciation of Juha Lepidin, but I did not badly, apparently. Oh, congratulations. Mm. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is actually not exactly this week, but I'm taking some sort of license here, which is uh, I had the Royal Ballet come to the cast theatre in Doncaster. Ah, yes. I remember you talking about this. And it was the opening of their season, and they did a whole range um, – I can't call them numbers, can you? And they, did a, <laughs> they did a whole range of work. They did two performances, one on the Friday night, which I went to, and then one on the Saturday afternoon, which sadly I couldn't go to because I was at the Labour Party conference. But they also did work with 300 young people from Doncaster, and they did a, a sort of open-air performance. And it was so brilliant to see the Royal Ballet in Doncaster on stage. And they were absolutely fantastic. And it came from a conversation I had with Kevin O'Hare, who is the director of the Royal Ballet. Obviously, I wanted them to come to Doncaster. And honestly, it was absolutely brilliant and made me really, really cheerful. And it was great to see the diversity of the different work they do. It was everything from parts of Swan Lake to kind of an Elvis number they did. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, it was just fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. What's your reason to be cheerful? I think you know. Now, I have to be careful here because I've signed an NDA. This week, I took Eugene to see the new series of The Masked Singer being recorded. I didn't know. Because of the NDA, I have to be extremely careful. All I'm saying is I've been to karaoke with you and I know what your voice sounds like. I have been to a concert with you and I've seen the way you move and gyrate to the music. Well, look, And that, I'm not, that I'm is my not, reason to be cheerful. And you, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Following in the footsteps of Alan Johnson. I'm not saying anything, Jeff. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, to talk about this whole issue of trickle-down economics and middle-out economics, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Sue Himmelweit, who is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the Open University and is a member of the Women's Budget Group. Sue, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So just sort of to start with the basics, people will have watched what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were proposing in that budget, but obviously they didn't invent these ideas. Where where did trickle-down economics originate from? Well, nobody actually describes themselves as following trickle-down economics. It's it's right. a term used to discredit, term abuse, discredit other people's views. Yeah. I think the term was first used in the 1920s in the US. The basic approach, it's a supply-side approach, um, which means that they concentrate more on what creates the conditions of production rather than how do we get enough demand in the economy. And it was the ideas that were used by both Reagan and Thatcher. And it was a reaction at the time to the failures of Keynesianism to really get the economy working well. Keynesianism being about the demand side of the economy. Exactly. Um, And the general presumption in supply-side economics or trickle-down economics is that markets know best, that government actions tend to be inefficient, distortionary, um, and rather than using demand management to create full employment, you should use it to discipline workers. So that's what we saw very much in the 1980s, that if you don't have full employment, workers are in a worse position and so accept worse conditions. But economic growth arises out of private investment, and that is driven by profit-seeking behaviour. And that taxes, like 
regulation, they dampen profit-seeking behavior because people keep less of their own money. So lower taxes for the rich give the rich more incentive and, of course, then more money to, to invest. The economy grows. That facilitates wage rises, pension rises for everyone else, and, of course, good public services. That's the argument. And that's the trickle down, that last bit. That's a very good explanation, if I may say so. Now, it's obviously kind of there's an element of subjectivity about this. But what is the evidence on whether trickle down economics or supply side economics has contributed to economic growth? Well, I have to say, first of all, that I think the evidence is treated as a bit irrelevant because it's an approach driven completely by a set of beliefs in how markets work right. rather than evidence on it. But there is plenty of evidence that wealth in the hands of the rich now is not being used to drive investment in the UK, but instead being either hoarded or put into financial or other assets. So pushing up prices rather than doing anything productive. So there is, there's quite strong evidence against it, particularly now in current circumstances. Now, look, many of our listeners will be very sceptical of trickle-down economics or supply-side economics. You say there isn't sort of, it's hard to sift through the evidence and it's a sort of matter of belief for those who advocate it. How do you then tend to think about it? It seems to me that given that there isn't evidence for it and its effects are massively um, disequalizing. I'm very interested in creating a more equal society. But there's also good reason for creating a more equal society. You know, even the the IMF now says one of the problems with growth, if that's what you're after in an economy, is the levels of inequality that have been produced. So your basic argument is there isn't the evidence to justify this, but we do know it increases inequality because that's almost sort of not its purpose, but it's it's definitely its effect because it's cutting taxes right at the top, as we saw with that budget. So why would you want to do it fundamentally? Well, I think also a bit more that inequality itself is is a bad thing. It's bad for growth. It's, well, it's bad for having a healthy economy. You have to know that inequality hampers the economy and everybody's health and well-being. It's bad for the development of skills. It's bad for their health. All the things that actually make a healthy economy. Now, as you've thought about these issues for some time, does it strike you that the mood among economists, uh, of which obviously you're one, has changed on this question of supply side trickle down? We had in the 1980s, in particular, the Nigel Lawson's 1988 budget, a very cut taxes at the top budget. We had it with Kwasi Kwarteng's budget. Well, the Kwasi Kwarteng's budget got dumped in the bin. Is the mood of either of economists, the public, different than it was back then? I'm not sure. You've, we've ever had many economists supporting this right. sort of thing. If you right. remember, there was a letter right. from right. Let, let, let's economists. defend the economists here. <laughs> that we should defend the economists. Yeah, go on, carry uh, they, on. I don't think they supported Thatcher's policy, if you remember, right. and certainly right. not now. And it's quite clear that the OBR seems to share the view that it doesn't work, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks. So I I think it's unlikely to be revived soon. I think in some ways, most conservatives believe in trickle down of some sort, but only vary in their emphasis. But I think that most of the public has a very strong belief in fairness, and so would reject trickle down, basically. And there's something very interesting, isn't there, which is which is worth bringing out, which is... Um, 
you said the economists didn't really believe it and the public don't really believe it. Can we read into the reaction to the quasi quarting budget that one of the reasons why the markets reacted so badly was, yes, because it was these unfunded tax cuts, and yes, because the institutions of the OBR had been sidelined, but also they didn't really believe it either. I mean, if they had believed that economic growth was suddenly going to be magically produced by this and the British economy would start roaring ahead and it would all be very successful, presumably they wouldn't have had that kind of reaction. Well, I'm not sure that the markets are judging the state of the British economy rather than whether people who, who lend money will get their money back. And that's not necessarily right. the same thing. One of the things that the markets, you know, we, we keep talking about them as though they're people, they're not really, is uh, one of the things they may not have believed is that actually the government would deliver on all the other parts of the, that process that would have been necessary for a proper supply side approach. Now, let me ask you this. We're going to be talking shortly uh, about alternatives with Nick Hanauer and Juha Lepinen from Finland. How do you think about the alternative to supply side or trickle down? Oh, well, it seems to me that the best way to improve the health of the economy is to improve the conditions of its workers. You asked me when I was preparing for this, does um, trickle down have any merit? And the only thing I could think to say was no merit. But the one idea that one should perhaps look to the supply side as well as demand management, and that was the one good idea in it, that it is important to look at the supply side of the economy, you know, especially given current labour shortages. Where would that take you to? That would take me to saying that, you know, people are dropping out of the labour market because of ill health. There are about a quarter of a million extra people who are too unwell to work at the moment. So those, And that's part of the long-term effect of not investing enough in health and social care. So we need to invest more in that. We've got child and adult care services in crisis. So that in itself prevents those people who are ill getting better and also prevents people who are caring for them and unpaid carers for taking employment. And those together are part of the explanation of why we have such labour shortages. Now, you said very interestingly at the beginning of this interview that trickle-down was sort of a term of abuse, and they would call it supply-side. But it does take us to the question of narrative. Is is the right side of politics better than the progressive side at telling a narrative story? I, I like the way you put it, which is, you know, an economy succeeds depending on the success of its workers. But 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 talk to us a little bit about that narrative question. I think that the right does have an advantage in narrative, and it has the advantage that it's telling a story about the economy in the way that it is. So people's experience is that you, you've got your mortgage to pay, you've got this to pay, you've got that to pay. And the right, the right's narrative is a story about what you need to do next within the, the sort of economy that we have, while the left is trying to change things more than that. And therefore, it, it requires sort of leaps of imagination. So, for example, with public services, if we have very poor public services, it's very difficult for, for people to believe that it would make a huge difference them being so much better because they don't have many expectations about, of the quality of those services. Um, and it, that's also fed, I think, by a, a sort of distrust of politicians that you know it will just be a waste giving them money because they won't they won't really improve public services and there's and i have to say that the i do think that the sort of media we have feeds that that point of view we can't reestablish democracy without some trust in in politicians 
Um, and and I think poor quality public services are really one way to make sure that politicians are not trusted. I've got one final question for you. We have something on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is where Jeff, who's unfortunately not here today, uh, is uh, the benign ruler. Mm -hmm. If you were cultivating an alternative to trickle down or, well, you said there's some reason for supply side being important, but a different sort of supply side. What's your number one thing that you would want to do? I would want to improve public services. That seems the most important at the moment. The the state they're in is so dire. And does that have big implications for the success of the economy as well as our society in your oh, view? Oh, yes. Um, investing in public services is, is the best way to create employment. It's the best way to create good employment. It, it is also a very good way of tackling gender inequalities. And you're a long-term advocate of a proper childcare system for our country as sure, well. Sure, that, that would be part of it. We have, a, have an economy that everything's being drained out of at the moment. And that's the way to start rebuilding it, it, it feels to me. Sue Himmelweit, it's a kind of important day. We've uh, Britain has lost a prime minister, <laughs> um, but the show carries on. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. To talk further about this issue of trickle-down versus middle-out economics, I am delighted to say that we are joined by friend of the podcast, author, venture capitalist, and founder of Civic Ventures, Nick Hanauer, who is in London. Nick, welcome. Lovely to see you. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. It's so good to have you on. And one of the reasons it's good to have you on is that you are the person who coined the phrase middle out, as opposed to trickle down. It, it says so on Wikipedia, so it must be true. Well, it is in fact true. <laughs> it is in fact true, and it's on Wikipedia. Tell us about the, the, the story of how you got to this. And it was in your book, I believe, Gardens of Democracy in 2011. That's right, that I co-authored with Eric Liu. So there are really two parts to the story. There's the narrative part, which is middle-out economics. And then there's the underlying theoretical economics part, too. <laughs> and they're inextricably intertwined. And I have, for a really long time, believed, and I'm you know, absolutely certain at this point, that the sort of conventional orthodox understanding of economic cause and effect uh, that the framework of understanding that we regard as neoclassical economics or standard economics that policymakers from around the world have been using has basically a pack of lies. It was not created with ill intent, but all of the underlying assumptions of neoclassical economics, the standard model of human behavior, the standard way of understanding what prosperity is, where it comes from, all of that is internally consistent, mathematically elegant, and persuasive, but just objectively wrong. Much of 
you know, our uh, economics went wrong in a, in a, in a really profound way. And mostly the conventional understanding is that it's a protection racket for the rich. And any, if you take any of the principles of classical economics or, or orthodox economics seriously and enact policies on the basis of it, the only thing that can happen is a few people will get richer and everybody else will get poorer. The shorthand for describing that old-timey way of economics, we call trickle-down economics in the United States, and that you do, you do too, to a certain extent here. And what we knew is that we had to have a, a, a way of describing, a way of creating a contrast. So when we wrote Gardens of Democracy, we went through about 10,000 iterations to try to come up with something that we could describe as a contrast, and middle out is where we landed. And if you had to describe in simple terms the difference between trickle-down economics and middle-out economics, how would you describe it? So the conventional neoliberal view is that there is always a trade-off between economic efficiency and increasing economic justice. If one thing, like wages, goes up, another thing, like jobs, must go down. That and other sort of economic principles lead you to the belief that if you make rich people richer, everyone will benefit. A so-called rising tide lifts all boats. And that the rich are job creators, and the more money they have, the more jobs they create. If corporate tax rates are low, then businesses will be incentivized to work harder, and they'll have more profits, which they will invest, and so on and so forth. But it is demonstrably false. There's just no economic evidence for these claims whatsoever. And the truth of it is, and you, and this is easily proved in the sort of economic historical record, that a thriving middle class is not a consequence of economic growth. A thriving middle class, and by middle class, I mean the majority of the citizens in the middle of the income distribution, when they thrive, so does the economy. And middle-out economics is basically shorthand for a way of thinking about economic cause and effect that, that believes that the best way to create economic progress in a market economy is to enact policies that ensure that the majority of citizens in the middle of the distribution thrive, and when they do, the entire economy thrives, not rich people at the top. So that's it. Now, many of our listeners will find that very appealing, obviously. Can you give us some of the reasons why, not just that it's fairer, which is what people might think, it's not just fairer, you're saying? It actually works better. It's also, it works better. So give us some of the reasons for that. I'm going to get a little bit wonky and technical, but the conventional way to think about prosperity is to think that price equals value and that GDP gross domestic product is a fair proxy for welfare. And therefore, uh, what we should just do is try to make GDP go up. And if we do, everything will be just fine. And that is a very primitive and I think misleading way of thinking about it. In fact, GDP is a terrible way of thinking about economic progress. A much better, more modern way of understanding what prosperity is, is it is the accumulation of solutions to human problems, that a prosperous society basically has made available all kinds of solutions to human problems, and a primitive society does not. 
prosperity really is the the consequence of a positive feedback loop between increasing amounts of innovation and increasing amounts of demand effectively and 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 what that means is that each of those things effectively is driven by robust inclusion so the economy is people and the more robustly we include people in the economy both as consumers but also as effective workers and innovators and entrepreneurs the faster and better that feedback loop goes and the more economic progress you create. So understood thus, raising wages doesn't kill jobs, it creates them. And, you know, this this trickle-down play that the trust, I guess we must call it the former trust government. Exactly. (laughs) I should say to our listeners, we're recording this uh, approximately 40 minutes after her resignation. (laughs) That old-timey 1980s-style trickle-down play that she tried um, is is effectively this, this idea that you can buy economic growth or progress with tax cuts for the rich. But sadly, that isn't how it works. You have to earn economic progress. You have to build it from the middle out. And so investments in the middle in again, I'm using this word middle class, which is an yeah, um, yeah. American, American term, but it basically yeah. means the 80% of the people who are in the middle of the income distribution, um, when those people have the capacity to both innovate themselves and to sustain the innovation in that society with adequate demand, that's what drives the economy. And so and, and so that's how it works. So you've set out very eloquently the framework. What are the other examples we should be thinking of as our flagship middle out agenda? We know what the trickle down agenda is, yeah. tax cuts for the rich and so on. What are the other flagship things you'd be pointing us towards as part of the middle out agenda? So I think the most important thing I wish I had a very easy answer to your question, is to find a way to ensure that working people get a fair split of the value created by enterprise on a sustained basis. In other words, you know, the United States for many decades after World War II grew in a way such that in every single decile, Wages went up in basic proportion to I- increases in the size of the economy. And then in about the mid-70s, wages decoupled from productivity, and all of the benefits of increased productivity growth went to the top 1% or 2%. And so if it was me, if somebody was foolish enough to put me in charge, uh, what I would do is I would link the floor to the ceiling. I would raise the minimum wage to an adequate level and then permanently tie it to the wages of the top 1%. A lot of people are like, well, you know, how, how much is too rich? And I'm like, I don't care how rich you are as long as everybody else comes along with you. We want to just make sure that every single citizen who works benefits from that growth. I know quite a lot about some of the amazing things that you've been doing. And one of them is been campaigning for a $15 
minimum wage right. in Washington, the fight for 15, as it's known in the yeah. US. And you have been a big advocate for that. And this is there's an interesting lens, isn't it, to, to look to look at that through the trickle down view which is that would be a disaster correct and the and the middle out view although i was a big obama supporter he was a deeply neoliberal person and was surrounded by neoliberal economists and they simply would not address any of the economic issues that the country faced and the obama administration absolutely believed that if you raise the minimum wage you would kill jobs and so we were like, look, we have to challenge this orthodoxy. And the best way to do it, the simplest way to do it, is to advocate for a minimum wage, which would effectively go from a fairness and pity argument to a growth argument. And the narrative on the minimum wage, $15 minimum wage, went from, well, we feel super sorry for these people and we should throw them a bone by raising the minimum wage a little bit. And we were like, no, you, if workers earn more money, then businesses will have more customers and hire more workers, which is basically the fundamental rule of capitalism. If nobody has any money, who will buy the stuff? (laughs) It's a pretty simple question. And so the $15 minimum wage was a great policy success, which we started just in a tiny town outside of Seattle. But what we know for absolute certain is that you can raise the minimum wage uh, an enormous amount and seen effectively zero negative effect on employment, which begs the question, well, maybe it should be in 30, <laughs> right? Now, let me ask you one other thing, which is some, pe- some people would think that the most interesting thing about you, which we haven't yet discussed, is that you are a billionaire. And now, I actually think there are many other more interesting things about your work. But say something about your view of this as somebody who's very much at the upper end of the income scale in terms of trickle down. Yeah. Well, first, let me say that I have less than 1 billion US dollars. All right. Okay. But okay. close, a lot. <laughs> okay. okay. In about 2007, I got a look at the IR, the history of the IRS tax tables. That's the Inland Revenue Service, yeah, like yeah. Uh, HM, and, and HMRC. So basically, yeah. who made what over, over generations. And what I discovered was that in 1980, the top 1% of Americans shared about 8% of national income, and that by 2007, the top 1% share had grown from 8 to 21 or 22%, while the bottom share had fallen from 18 to 12. And I just stuck those numbers in a spreadsheet and said, okay, if this pattern continues, what will happen? And the answer is, unambiguously, revolution. Do you end up with some sort of feudal authoritarian state? And that circumstance didn't seem like it would suit me. (laughs) You know, I just, I kind of like capitalist democracies (laughs) and I don't really want to live in a feudal totalitarian state. And so I freaked out and I got to work on this issue. And so I have been on a long, uh, and sometimes unpleasant journey (laughs) to try to get folks to recognize, particularly people at the top, that no one has a stake in sustaining this thing like we do. And you did a TED talk called The Pitchforks Are Coming, I think. I did. Well, the first one- And that was very controversial. Well, I've done three TED Talks. The first one was about raising taxes on the rich that was so controversial that the TED people refused to post it. Yeah. And then I did another one called Pitchforks Are Coming for Us Plutocrats, which- was based on a piece I wrote that 
went super viral. And if people like you and I want to live in a good society, we need to make sure that it is arranged in such a way so that every citizen who participates robustly feels like they are being treated fairly. So that's why middle-out economics, I think, is so important. Well, look, Nick, it's great to talk to you. I believe you have a book coming out, hopefully, in the next year or so. We look forward to having you back on to talk about that. But for now, thanks so much. Now, to carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Juha Lepanen, who is CEO of Demos Helsinki in Finland. Juha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Let's then talk about, if you like, the alternative. So we've heard from Nick Hanauer from the US, um, this idea of middle-out economics. Is there a way that Finland describes its approach to economy and society? We, we think in the UK of Finland as having, you know, good childcare, very good wealth, strong welfare state, all of those things, strong public services. Is there a way that that is described? Would, would middle out be a term? I don't know what middle out is in Finnish, but it, it, would, would it be something that you'd recognize or something like that? No, absolutely. That's a really, really interesting question, actually, because if you would ask anyone in Finland, they wouldn't most likely recognize that term, nor it would be one through which we would describe the economic model. But then if we actually look at the outputs of the economic model, I can see quite a bit of similarities, what Nick Hanauer would call middle-out economics, essentially. And even more so if you basically take the from bottom-up to middle-out as an approach. There's a very, like, to give you a little bit of a context on Finland, one aspect is that uh, there is a wide consensus of the Finnish economic model essentially being an expert-driven model. So that has meant that you need to increase productivity in order to basically have a healthier economy, uh, essentially. But then the other piece of context, which I feel is even more important, is the fact that if you look back historically, Finland used to be one of the poorest countries in Europe, uh, one of the least educated ones, uh, ones as well. Very remote, up north, cold, dark. Uh, there's no significant natural resources that we could have been able to build our economic model on. So essentially what that translated in was almost like a national ethos of one needing to take, uh, bring all the potential of people up essentially. Uh, so in practice, what that meant, meant was uh, significant investments in education, um, in innovation to get the productivity up, uh, but also a very strong universal ethos. Uh, so universal services, regardless of where you sit, where you are geographically, in terms of your class or economic context. So, and that was perceived to be almost like a part of the value of the and the human nature in a way. So it was not as much about the economic model, that was of course part of it, but I would say a broader societal model and an agenda uh, built that is based on, on on investing in people. And you've anticipated my next question actually, which is you can see why for social equality this is uh, important. Do people in Finland tie this to economic success? Absolutely, yes, I would say so. Uh, so there would be a very general like consensus in the politics that one needs to, through investments in education, um, for instance, increase uh, one's productivity and increase one, one's economic output as well. It's also something that was really explicitly there with our current government, uh, which essentially had investments on people, also on, for instance, decarbonization very explicitly on the plate. So I would say that that... There's different interpretations depending on where you are. And I would say that there's difference also how much you believe 
uh, in investing in people's potential. And the current government is a social democratic government. Um, is it is it shared across right and and left this philosophy that you've talked about? Yes, but there would be different distinctions because Finland, as well as many of the other countries in Europe and the world, has been like running down some of the investments. So uh, essentially, there's been austerity means uh, for the past uh, decade since the financial crisis. Uh, so now this government has tried very explicitly to turn that trajectory around by basically making it really explicit uh, that there is a strong investment agenda on people, uh, at while at the same time, um, it's essentially connecting it uh, to the wider societal transformations. So the goal of the current coalition would be carbon neutral welfare state by 2035. And talk to us about business and their role, its role in this. Has business generally been a supporter of this approach, this kind of model, this economic model? Yeah, I would say so. It again depends a little bit about which moment of time we're talking about. But historically speaking, I think there's been a consensus also from the business community. So the Nordic and the Finnish societal model is a uh, tripartite model in which uh, the government, uh, the unions, so the labor, and then the businesses negotiate historically quite a lot together. Uh, and that is the basis of the consensus, essentially. And that consensus was first formulated right after the Second World War, uh, when there was a significant need also to create a societal model that would be attractive enough uh, to stand uh, in, in between, essentially, the Soviet Union and the West. I see. That's interesting. So before the Second World War, this wouldn't have been very recognizable. It was a different approach. Is that right? Well, before the Second World War, Finland was a really rural nation uh, and much, much different to what it is right now. There was already that ethos of, in a way, a universal ethos to an extent. And it was also the time in which uh, the Nordic models were developed. But in Finland, in practice, that agenda of investing with a societal consensus on education, for instance, was really built after the Second World War. And talk to us about this your role geographically in the world and the role of your relationship to the Soviet Union in this? Well, Finland, after the Second World War, Finland was one of those rare countries that was left uh, in the middle, in a way. So it balanced between uh, having a long border with the Soviet Union, having quite a lot of different business ties and, and trade with the Soviet Union as well, but then having an identity uh, in between and also in the West. So that balance has been a big distinctive uh, aspect of the Finnish society. I think the key here is what is also relevant right now uh, in the crisis in which we are with the war in Ukraine, with the energy crisis. Because during, after the Second World War, one of the drivers for putting in place the social model, the investments on people, was security, essentially. So the model had to be attractive enough uh, in order for it to stand and not to become a communist model, essentially. So it had to be attractive for everyone, also the workers. And I see a lot of similarities today, actually. So if I look at the situation today, what I see in the European landscape is essentially a new political synthesis of uh, security, energy, climate, social, and economic policy. So those five come together, and it has two implications. One is that it means that 
all of those can be reframed through security. On the social policy, what it means is that there has to be a fairly strong level of social cohesion in the society. Because if you lose, if the people don't believe in the model, if the prices of energy, food go too high, you'll see a fragmentation of the social fabric, which of course is in a, an immediate security risk in regards to the uh, positions on, for instance, supporting Ukraine. But it's also a longer term risk in terms of trust being lost on institutions. So that's essentially where it is. But it becomes even more interesting when you think of those five together, because one of those most likely needs to bend. And the question that we're seeing now in different uh, societies in Europe is that the economic policy actually is the one in which most of the fights are. So UK being one experiment, um, and our elections in April will be essentially in elections about this. So do we really believe that uh, we need to keep people on board, invest still in education, in redistribution, uh, subsidizing energy costs, for instance? If so, that costs quite a lot, uh, together with investments on decarbonization. So at, at least from my perspective, this wider discussion on economics and economic policy is the most important that we can have, because we need to come up with new approaches. Just to end with, we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, where Jeff is the benign ruler, or so he claims. What would be your advice to Jeff if the goal is to learn from Finland and say we're going to build a more inclusive and equitable society, maybe middle out? I mean, I know that's not the Finnish expression. Where would you start? It's an excellent question, I have to say. (laughs) Where I would start, because obviously it is difficult to replicate any model to another place, but where I would start is to look at the institutions, look at the product governance of the society. Because one aspect that often gets ignored when people talk about the Finnish model is that there's been innovations on technology, but there's also been social innovations. And those social innovations, for instance, have led to a situation in which the share of women in the labor force is really large. So to understand how those dynamics have formulated, how those institutions have been, first of all, come up with and then institutionalized would be a way to start in terms of learning from the Finnish model. I believe you may, this is going to mark me out as the nerd that I am. I think I have a book somewhere on my shelf called 100 Innovations from Finland. Does that book ring any bells with you? Exactly. That's exactly a book that I would recommend reading. Uh, exactly. I think I get some points for having that book uh, somewhere on my bookshelf. Juha uh, Lepponen, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Ed. My pleasure. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, ho, we're in the outro. We are. And much like uh, this week's subject and my prostate, I, I would say the, uh, the entries for our competition to find a new theme music has been a trickle. It's a quality trickle. Yes, this comes from Jonah Carswell, who says, Hey, Ed and Jeff. Trickle or treat? (laughs) Very good. I don't want to be dramatic or anything, but I think I might have made the perfect theme song for your podcast. I'm a 24-year-old singer-songwriter and producer, and I wrote this song a while ago. It's about how the best way to deal with the darkness in the world is to focus on all the progress that we can make and the positive ways in which we can impact the world. This pretty much sums up why I enjoy your podcast, because that's exactly what you guys focus on. He says, I've attached the song. Should we play a bit of it? Let's have a listen.
There's something a little bit Beatlesy about the guitars on this. I think it's really good. I did have a, a sneak listen to it earlier, and it's been stuck in my head ever since. I'm going to make a point, though. Go on. If I went to a tailor's yeah. and said, can you make me a pair of trousers, especially for my unique contours, and then he, he gave me a pair of trousers, yeah, he made for somebody else, maybe for you. <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite what I asked for. And I think this song is great, but I do feel a little bit like Jonas just uh, pulled something that he had ready off the shelf. He doesn't say that, though. Oh, I wrote this song a little while ago. Yeah, a while ago. you know, okay, the, the lyrics aren't okay. specific to us, which is, isn't a requirement. Anyway, well, look, good, good job, Jonah. I really like the song and it is stuck in my head. Okay, next one. This comes from John Walton, who says, Please find attached my submission for the Reasons to be Cheerful theme tune opportunity. I've tried to encompass some of the hints and tips from Ed, Jeff and Dan McGrath, whilst trying to imagine what we listeners would like every week. Listen to this. All 30 tracks of instruments and vocals have been written, played, sung and recorded by me in my DIY home studio. We've got such talented listeners. I know. Says any comments, good or bad, would be greatly appreciated. Warmest regards, John. Let's have a listen. Life is tough, but when you tearful, so start each week with reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ah, oh. I mean, I, I love that resolve there at the end. It's a classic. I know. Do 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 do. Bam. Um. I really like that. It's, it's very jingly, is the thing I would say. I think that is both my praise and my criticism of it. Is is it more of a jingle than a theme tune? Do, 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 do. I love John being a one-man orchestra. Really impressive. Be curious to know if you also conducted yourself, John, if you could give us that information. We're still looking for submissions. We've got half an idea. Can we? Is there a way of democratizing We've got half this? an idea. That's a good description of our podcast. <laughs> We've got half an idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeff Lloyd. That's going to be on my gravestone, that, I think. So we're still looking for submissions. And we've got this idea that maybe, half an idea, that maybe we can democratise it and bit, include different bits of different submissions and weave it all into... One beautiful audio tapestry. An audio trifle. Do you weave a trifle? I think that's another thing with your cooking that we might have it's to discuss. It's got lots of different bits to it, doesn't it? It does. Tray bake. Or yes. tray bake it. So please send us your submission. It is reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. I'd like to thank Sue Himmelweit, Nick Hanauer and Yuha Lepinen. Now, I should just mention that next week's episode is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be one of our long-form author interviews. Ed, you were detained with the aforementioned fracking business during this interview, so it'll just be me. But do listen. I understand uh, why you hear that and think, I'll give that one a miss then. But it is a great conversation. I'm going to be talking to Nicola Rollock, who is the author of a new book called The Racial Code, Tales of Resistance and Survival. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer produces all the content you hear on the podcast, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Thank you.